There are profound truths. They are glories that you have accomplished for your everlasting praise through your Son. Praise that has been instilled and implanted in the hearts of your people who have been made to see your glory in Christ, to taste of your kindness and your forgiveness and your redemption in Christ, to be united to Christ and to forever sing the praises and the full experience of the salvation that you have brought to us in Christ. And so we ask now as we open your word that you would be our teacher to exalt Christ and exalt yourself and exalt the glory of God in our hearts as we consider Our Lord, who you are and what you've done as we prepare our hearts to come to your table to offer to you the worship of faith, to declare your praises, our trust in you, and proclaim your death until you return again to take your people home. This is a day that we long for. Fill our hearts with anticipation. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 as we continue to make our way through this opening chapter of the book of Revelation. Let me introduce our our text this morning as we come now to part 4 or 5 that was debated this week. Uh, We'll call it part 4 I think in the bulletin. Uh, But part 4 of Revelation chapter 9 through 20, a section we're taking as one, although looking at it in these uh, various parts, and coming this morning again to verse uh, 17 and 18. And then we'll wrap up this chapter next week in verses 19 through 20. But let me introduce it this way, our text this morning, by noting that a consistent and sometimes subtle temptation of the church is towards man-centeredness. That really is a profound reality. It's, a, it's something that's said... Uh, often it's a true statement, but the difference between being man-centered and God-centered is, is everything. And it comes, this man-centeredness, uh, in many ways and oftentimes very subtly. One common symptom of a man-centered view of the church and of salvation is the church's embarrassment about God's absolute sovereignty over everything. We touched on that a bit last week. But particularly, sometimes Christians' embarrassment over God's relationship to evil and to his acts of judgment. It's embarrassed to defend and to proclaim the reality that there is an actual hell. That God is not surprised by evil. He is actually sovereign over evil. As we looked in Isaiah last week, he is sovereign over light and over calamity, over evil and over good. One example of this can be seen even as early as the... Early church heretic Marcion was his name, and there's a Marcionite. Some of you are familiar with some of church history, would recognize that name. Possibly influenced by Gnosticism, he rejected the God of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, wrathful God, certainly not a God to be worshipped. The God to be worshipped, the God who is, is the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the God of love, the God of forgiveness. One historian, respected historian, describes his teaching in this way, he, being Marcion, maintained that the God of the Old Testament and of the Jews is an evil God, recalling the words of Jesus that a good tree cannot bring forth, or cannot bring forth evil fruit. He argued that a world which contains the suffering and cruelty which we see all about us must be the work of some evil being and not of a good God. Marcion held that in the contrast with the God of the Jews, there is a second God hidden until he revealed himself in Christ. This is a God of love. Not so different than some of the things that we hear even in our own time. Some want to take this route to protect Christ from having, again, any involvement with the reality of evil in the world. And so some go this, go this uh, road, that God is as sorry about evil and suffering as we are. He is, in some sense, as much a victim about the evil and in the world as we are. Uh, this is attached to a theology known, some of you will be familiar with, open theology. It's a fruit of Arminianism, which has as its heart the supreme goal to protect the will of man, the free will of man. But in defending God against evils, 
supposedly defending him, Greg Boyd says this, the final type of power is agape power. This type of power seeks to serve, love, and make others greater than oneself. It is other-oriented power, and it is not what the world thinks power is. In fact, it seems like we're giving power away when we serve others. Jesus shows us that God lives and dies in this type of power. God could use Neanderthal power to subjugate the world to his will. However, God gives up his power to show his love to his people. And the teaching there is of Greg Boyd and that ilk is that God is powerful in himself, but he sets it aside because he doesn't want to wrongly influence man or subvert the free will of man. And so he subjects himself to man's evil decisions and to wickedness in the world as much as we are. And so you can see that often reflected in popular Hollywood films that try to promote some kind of Christianity that say God weeps with you in this tragedy that has come. He's sorry with you, but he's there to be with you in the midst of it. Some want to preclude any sense of judgment from Christ. He is only tender. He, he is only gentle with sinners, who, even those who reject him. And so if you speak of judgment or God's sovereignty over evil, and particularly if you speak of hell and eternal conscious physical wrath of those who die in a state of rejection of Christ, they would say something like this, my God would never do that. My God would never do that. My God is too loving to do that. My God is a God of love. He would never do that to someone. Some want to present Christ as the object in his death and resurrection, or particularly his death, as the object of divine child abuse. And they deny the fact that Christ actually suffered a wrath of God, a displeasure of God, a condemnation of God, which was experienced in a sense of some kind of mysterious separation from fellowship with God as the incarnate son on the cross. And they say, no, that could never happen because that would make God an ogre, an abuser of children, of his own child. And so one says this, Stephen Chalk, the fact is that the cross isn't a, is a form of ch cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing the son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetuated by God towards humankind but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. And so these are different voices that are a subtle expression of a man-centeredness. In other words, it wants to bring God into the conception of what is right, what is just, and what is loving down to our level of conception of these things. It makes God in our image. These teachings make Christ into our own making, an image and idea of Christ that we can live with and that makes us more comfortable, less threatened by who he really is. But there's the problem. That's not who Christ really is. That's not who God really is. And so to have that conception of God is in fact to participate in idolatry with the name of Christ on it. It is a false God. It is not the God who is. It is not the God who is revealed in Scripture. And actually, that is not to our fear and dismay. That is something for which we can be very thankful and find true hope. In tragedy or suffering or in the rise of evil, the last thing we need is some sappy, sentimental God who's as sad and sorry and disappointed as we are, but hopes he can work all things out in the end. We don't want a God like us. We want a God who is transcendent a God who is other than us, a God who stands outside of his creation and absolutely sovereignly rules over it. We want a God who has a purpose and a plan that is determined and will be accomplished because he determined it before the foundation of the world. We have a God who is mysterious, who is other than we are, and that we can't fit into a box, but that we know stands outside of our mere conceptions of reality and rules it according to a wisdom that we can't even fathom. That's the God that we want, if we're honest. Our hearts long for a God who is absolutely on his throne, ruling over his creation, the nation, and our lives in absolute power, authority, wisdom, holiness, and goodness, though mysterious. 
I doubt very seriously that there is much comfort if there are the Christians who are in Ukraine who are seeing buildings blown up and separated from their family, one a God who is as sorry at the power of Putin as they are. That's no God to be worshipped and no God to be trusted. In fact, the more we try to make God like us, or the more we try to make him appealing to our sense of compassion and justice, the more we diminish his grace, not magnify it. It is his distinction, it is his utter holiness, it is his transcendence, it is his eternal glory, it is the glory of God and our wretchedness in light of that glory and the fact that that God extends grace to us in Christ, certain and guaranteed and unassailable, is the comfort of the Christian. It's what makes grace sweet and amazing and unexpected and is the well of strength and blessing for his people. And that is precisely the God that he is presented to us in the book of Revelation and by the Apostle John. And remember, this is a, a God presented, this is God as he is presented to a people where he's going to spend most of the rest of the 22, or 19 chapters from this point on, or 17 from chapter 2 on, describing a God who's going to bring justice to the world that's going to unleash wrath on the world. And he's saying this is the God that you need to understand so that you can have hope. So let's read it and then we'll look at it more closely. So we're coming into the last part of this vision in verse 17. We'll begin there and read down to verse 19. Uh, John says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So these titles of Christ, of the risen Christ, that we're considering in someone, some detail... And introducing are the very titles that the risen Christ gave to the Apostle John to encourage him to not be afraid, to not be afraid. These are the titles, the realities, the truths communicated about the risen Christ that are designed to bring comfort and encouragement to him. Now, we've entitled this section... Six Disclosures of the Sovereign Lord. And we've looked already in the early part of the section in verse 9 that he is the Sovereign Lord of Revelation. He is the Sovereign, Exalted God-Man who has revealed himself to his church. He is the Sovereign Lord of Glory. He is the Sovereign Lord of History. And this morning we'll consider that he is the Sovereign Lord of Redemption and the Sovereign Lord of Judgment. And that's really at the second part there of verse 18. He said, I am the first and the last and the living one. That is the sovereign Lord of history. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is the sovereign Lord of redemption. The sovereign Lord of redemption. This is in short a summary title of Christ then as a divine redeemer of the savior of his people. It is a title to communicate that his redemption is accomplished and affirmed in his death and his resurrection. And it's really a tremendous statement. Remember, it is the God-man who is speaking these words and declaring it from heaven. Let's notice only a few things. In, in this statement, then, Jesus is affirming that he is the one who walked among men and experienced a real death. He affirms his own death. He said, I was dead. I was dead. This glorious vision of the one John you see, this one who is the sovereign Lord of his people, was dead. I was that lifeless body hanging on the cross. And that is an important fact to understand. In John chapter 19, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but let me just mention it to you. This same writer makes sure to affirm that in his account of the life of the Lord. He says in verse 31... 
Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. The same soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And so one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen these things is testified and his testimony is true. And you may remember that the main cause of death in crucifixion was actually suffocation. And so when the spike was through the foot and sometimes there was a little platform there, uh, those who were on the cross could lift up and they would lift up, take a gasp of air and then come back down, lift up, take a gasp of air and come back down. And so the idea of breaking the legs was to disable them from that ability to do that. If their legs are broken, they can't take the pressure off. And so they eventually then would die of suffocation. That process, if they did not break their legs, could go on for hours, sometimes even for days in the worst situations. John accounts for us that when they came to Jesus, these soldiers did not break his legs because he was already dead. That was, as he'll say later in John 19, a fulfillment of prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. But more specifically, it is a divine testimony that Jesus did actually die. That it was an actual death. That there was no life in that body. It was a corpse like any other corpse when it has died. And just to accentuate the point that he was dead, they pierced his side with a sword. These were Roman soldiers. They were trained in death. They recognized death when they saw it. And John is affirming here that he was dead. We would observe next that it was a real death. And that's important because those who want to deny the resurrection, some want to deny the reality of his death. But he was dead He died, and Jesus here affirms it. But he's affirming more than the fact that he just physically died. He is affirming that his death was atoning, that his death was ordained for the redemption of his people. Dying just in the fact by itself is not redeeming, but Jesus' death was not merely a physical death. So Romans 6.10 says the death he died, he died to sin once for all. His death was unique as the God-man. He was the only one to die, the only human being to die without sin. Never has a human being died without sin. Jesus died as the God-man without sin. And therefore, he is is the only one, by virtue of his glory as the God-man and being without sin, who could die a death that served as a sin-bearing sacrifice for his people. So notice the way that John himself talks about this death, even in the book of Revelation. And just follow along. I'm just going to run through some of it. In verse 5, he said, this was the death. We've looked at this several times. That has released us from our sins. It is a death that has freed us from sin. Jason prayed that very well as he was praying to the Father this morning. Remembering that it is a death that has released us from sin. It is a death that has released us from and freed us from condemnation. It has redeemed us. Listen to the praise of God's people in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. He says that you were slain, you were dead. This is declaring his worthiness of the one to break the seals of judgment. He says you were slain, in other words you were dead. And in that death he says you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, nation, tongue, people and nation. In other words, the condemnation that is coming upon the world is a condemnation that the people of God escaped from because Christ was slain and bore that on our behalf. His death was a wrath-absorbing death. It's a death that cleansed us from corruption that allows us to be in his presence. In chapter 7, 14 of Revelation, it says this, of those who are John is observing before the throne in his vision. The angel explains to him that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are those who have been cleansed, those who have been purified, those who have been made white, those who are able to be in the presence of God because of the death, the atoning death of Christ on their behalf. It is a death then that gives us strength to persevere in Persecution. 
In Revelation chapter 12, 11, he says this, they overcame, speaking of those who did not love their life even to death, they overcame because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And that then becomes significant. He who died is the one who calls his people to die. And as he died according to the plan of God, so that is according to the plan of God that his people would suffer as well. And that brings them into a third point of his death. It was real, it was an atoning death, and it was a death ordained by God. It in no way threatened his sovereignty. In fact, his death, even as he was hung weak on the cross, even as he hung in agony on the cross, was not a picture of the lack of God's sovereignty. It was the very evidence of his sovereignty. It was the very evidence of his perfect and divine and sovereign and eternal plan being accomplished in spite of all of the rejection of the world. It was a death planned before the foundation of the world and carried out in time under the complete sovereignty of God. He was dead because God willed that he would die in place of his people. It was not a tragedy in the sense of something that could have prevented. It was not divine child abuse. It was not God as sorry as anyone else. It was the purpose of God. As a matter of fact, Isaiah said that the father was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, speaking there of the fruit of his resurrection. And so again, just by way of reminder, this is exactly what Paul declares, and Peter, excuse me, in the early preaching of the gospel. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. You put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Having experienced persecution, having been flogged, having been beaten, having been ordered not to speak in the name of Christ, the early apostles left that ordeal rejoicing in God, one that they, he considered them worthy to, be, to suffer. But he also says this in chapter 4. He says, truly in this city, they said, they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. This is for those who would know these terms. This is the idea of concurrence, of how God's providence works out in many ways. That is that he works his will through these secondary causes. That means that every decision of those who laid him on the cross, every decision of Herod, every decision of Pilate, every decision of the Jewish leaders was a decision they made, they are fully culpable for, and in every decision they made, they were exactly performing the will of God. Exactly as he said it would occur. There was nothing outside of his control. The disciples fled in fear because they felt like things had gotten out of control when he was betrayed. They hid and they cowered when Christ had died because they themselves feared persecution from the leaders who had put their Savior to death and the Lord to death. But there was no reason to fear. That was exactly what God had determined would occur, and it happened according to his purpose and his plan. There was not one evil thought or one evil deed outside of his sovereign control, either in that situation or since the beginning of the world. Christ was sovereign Lord at his death. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this again from the pen of the Apostle John, recording for us in John chapter 10. Jesus said, in describing his ministry as the good shepherd... He says this, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, my own know me. He says this, I lay down my life. No one is taking it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down in verse 18, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. So he was sovereign Lord at his death. He declares here, I did die. It was a death that was real. It was a death that was atoning. And it was a death that was according to the sovereign purpose of God. And again, this is the encouragement to us and to God's people. That those who follow Christ will also die. He says, if the world hates me, the world also will hate you. 
If they crucified your Savior and your Lord and your God, then they will crucify you who are identified with them. And this is especially true for those at the end of the age. And it is extremely encouraging to know that our sovereign Redeemer faced and endured death as he calls his people to do, but he overcame it and he destroyed it. And so that's the second part of the statement. He said, I was dead. Yes, I was dead. Yes, all of the world may have seen me at that point as dead. He says, but behold and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm alive forevermore. And this is encouraging. There was a Yale student walking along the street who was upset with some people who were outside of an abortion clinic. Uh, because they were trying to engage people walking in in a very respectful way. And he was upset and using expletives and then declaring that there is no evidence for Christianity. There's no evidence for Christianity. To which it was said, what about the resurrection? What about the resurrection? The resurrection stands as the eternal testimony of God that he is Lord. It is what God himself declares to be his own witness of his determination to judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed and declared right as the judge because he has raised him from the dead, speaking of Christ. He says, behold, I am alive forevermore. I died, but I'm alive. I died, but I live forever." He's already declared this to be necessary because of his very nature. In verse beginning of verse 18, he says, and he is the living one. And we looked at that last week. It's a statement of God. He has life in himself. Again, the fancy theological word is aseity. He has it in himself. Of himself, he is alive. He is God. He depends on nothing outside of him. And here is this God-man who in the mystery of the incarnation was able as a man to experience death, but because it was the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, could never be held in death's power. And the resurrection is the declaration of that. Again, why he could say, I lay my life down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This I received from the Father. So it was the eternal will of the Father that he would both die and that he would rise. And he is not simply one who possesses life, but again, he is life in himself. As a matter of fact, if Christ did not live forevermore and rise from the dead, all of creation would fall apart. Colossians 1.17 speaks of Christ and it says, In him all things hold together. All things hold together. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There would be no existence of anything. There would be no holding together of the universe if Christ were not alive forevermore. And so here he contrasts that with the death. The death that he died was once for all. It was temporary. But the life he lives, he lives as the God-man for eternity. One said this. I like the statement. He said, to live forever is a characteristic of God. It is also true of Jesus, who lives forever not by avoiding death, but by overcoming it through resurrection. So he declared his life by dying and then defeating death. That's the glory of the cross. That's the glory here displayed by Jesus to his people. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. However, the emphasis of the statement is not so much on the past event of the resurrection, which was an event in which he rose from the dead, the stone was rolled away, and so forth. It is on the fact that that resurrection declares that he is presently and eternally living as the redeemer of his people. So he says, I am for alive forevermore. Literally, it's uh, I'm alive for the ages of ages. Forever is the idea. And the weight of this statement is this. By saying that I am alive forevermore, first of all, his resurrection then was a declaration that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the King of his people, that he is the fulfillment of everything God determined that he would accomplish through the Messiah. There's one, but by saying that, which was declared in the resurrection, it is the emphasis is that he is not merely declared that in the resurrection when he rose from the grave, but that he is eternally that as the one who lives forever. Currently, presently. 
We sometimes miss that middle part. We've talked about that in the past and emphasizing the ascension of Christ and how important that is theologically to the work of God. We sometimes think of what Christ did in the past, that he died for sin and he rose, what Christ will do in the future, that he's coming back for his people to establish his kingdom. But here he is emphasizing right now he is the Lord who is the sovereign Lord who is alive forevermore for his people. And that is a sense of confidence. It means then that there is no escaping his rule, his wrath, and never the possibility for his own of losing their losing salvation. Again, just listen to the way that John unfolds this truth for us in the book of Revelation itself. By saying that he is alive forevermore is to declare that he is the one who is ruling over the nations now in the sense of that even in their going astray and even in their rebellion, they are not outside of his sovereign control and he will one day bring all the nations to account for their sin. It is to say that he who lives forever eternally with the Father will exercise his dominion forever. And in his own timing. So in one six, he's already indicated that. He says, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Dominion speaks of rule. It speaks of authority. And again, it's part of the worship that God receives. In verse 9, this is the worship of the Father. The living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. To him who lives forever and ever. Of the Father and the Son, in chapter 5, 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. It is the praise he receives forever and ever from those who are redeemed. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. In chapter 10, 6, it's the worship forever and ever of him as creator. In chapter 11, it is the worship of him forever and ever who's bringing his kingdom to the earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It also speaks of this, to say that he lives forever, to say that he is the Lord who eternally upholds justice, even in his wrath, forever and ever. Chapter 15, verse 7 It says, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. It affirms that he will carry out his eternal justice. In chapter 19, verse 3, the eternal judgment of the Hartman, it says he receives praise and says, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The fact that he lives forever is to say that he will forever hold accountable and execute his divine justice against the false prophet, against the Antichrist, against the devil, against all of the demons and those who followed them in chapter 20, verse 10. He says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is weighty. He is the one who lives forever. There is no escaping his rule. There's no escaping his wrath. But there's also no escaping the reality that for those in him, they are forever secure. In chapter 22, 5, he says this, There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Why? Because they belong to him who lives forever and ever. He is eternal. He lives, he reigns eternally, he receives glory eternally, he pours out his grace eternally, he pours out his justice eternally, the righteous will forever enjoy his saving benefits, and the wicked will forever bear his damning judgment. So that he lives forever has an encouragement to us and to his people. These are things that we're familiar with, I'll just mention some of them. To say that he lives forever then, is to say that Believers don't have to fear death. They can be faithful to the end. Why? Because it assures of the resurrection and unending fellowship with him. He lives forever and ever. So Jesus could say to Martha, standing there in light of the death of her son or her brother Lazarus, he could say, he who believes in me shall never die. He could say that to those who are going to be beheaded for the testimony of Christ. Be beheaded because you will never die. He could say that to believers who are suffering now 
and giving up their life for the testimony of Christ, you will never die. You can face it. You can endure it because you belong to me. And to say you will never die obviously does not mean that you will never experience physical death. It means that whether in life and death, your fellowship and your union with me will be unbroken. You will never be outside of my sovereign hand. You will never be outside of my sovereign care. You will never be outside of my sovereign love for you. You are secure. You are united to me. And I am forever united to you. It means then that whoever is beheaded, burned, imprisoned, slayed, shot for the testimony of Christ, whoever dies from disease, accident, crime, whatever, that that is not the end. Whoever died at sea in battle, whoever was blown up by a bomb in battle or by terrorist, whoever dies in the Lord has this assurance that it doesn't need to be feared because he who lives forever has promised this, that he will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. That's the Lord, the living one. And it assures us of his present and eternal mediation. It assures us of our salvation. He lives forever means this, that he is able to save forever, Hebrews 7.25, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You right now, believer, if you've trusted in Christ, have an interceder in the presence of God who appeared there for you. He intercedes for you. He's there for you. It means that he is forever your righteousness. Your righteousness isn't merely by the fact that Christ died and rose again. If you are a believer in Christ, your righteousness is secured not from merely a past event because your present and eternal union with the righteous one who is forever your righteousness. Christ is forever your righteousness. You are forever united to him. You are forever accepted into the presence of God because of his eternal righteousness of him who lives forever. It's an eternal righteousness. You could no more be in the righteousness of Christ and then lose the righteousness of Christ than he could cease to live and exist and be righteous himself. Your life is bound with the life of God. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Colossians, your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. He is our life. And it's because he lives forever. This is what is beside, behind the song. We love this song, and I, there's really no way to capture it better. You know which one I'm going to repeat. Let me repeat for the words for you here. And just consider these things even as we prepare for the Lord's table. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And that captures exactly what he's saying here. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I'm appearing to you in the glory of the risen God King and God Mediator and God Priest and God Savior and God Redeemer, the one who is with you, the one who will never forsake you. He is the Savior of his people, the ruler of all the nations. So when you come to the table, I would ask, do you have this confidence? Is that true of you? Even though we're not there yet, but in anticipation. Do you have that confidence? And ask him to give it to you. But lastly, let's look at this as we come prepare. This last point. And let me just note that's the most important question any of us can answer. But notice he is a sovereign Lord of redemption. He is our sovereign redeemer. 
He's also the sovereign Lord of judgment. And he says this, I am alive forevermore. And by virtue of the glory that was displayed in his resurrection, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his present mediation for his people, and in the promise of his return, he declares this, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. And this is essentially then to say he is the sovereign Lord of judgment. The sovereign Lord of judgment. Sovereign Lord of life and the sovereign Lord of death. Note he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. We will do well to point out that not Peter and not the Pope, but the living Christ has these keys. He holds them. He wields them. Christ holds the keys. The keys give one the ability to either lock or open, to imprison or to set free, to grant entrance or to keep one from entering. It's a possession of authority. It's a possession of authority. Again, let me just show you a couple of places where this is emphasized by John himself. He says to the church at Philadelphia, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one's will open. That's sovereignty. He says this of chapter 9, verse 1. He gives these keys to an angel to unleash demons from a pit where they now are but will not stay. He says in chapter 1 of verse 9, the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit, the smoke like the great furnace and so forth. A part of God unleashing his wrath upon the world. It is a picture of absolute sovereignty at the end of this age after the return of Christ when he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. It's a statement of sovereignty. Here he has the keys of death and of Hades, the keys of death and Hades. And it is then another statement, as each one of these is, implicitly and explicitly of his divine nature, of his divine nature. Only God has absolute sovereignty over life and over death. Only God has that power. Only God gives life. Only God takes life. Only God rules over the life that he gives. Let me just give you a few passages that are the background of this. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. For Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Psalm 139, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. That is to say that you come into this world with a set number of days to live on this world before you will be out of this world by death. Unless you're one of the blessed ones who got taken up, like Enoch or Elijah. But don't count on that. Unless we're here at the, at the um, rapture. And so he says here that God alone has that prerogative. And here it is acknowledged that Christ does. He's sovereign over death and Hades. Let's just consider what this means. What does he mean to say that he's sovereign over death? What does he mean to say that he's sovereign over death? Death is, of course, what entered into God's world. It was not a part of creation, is what entered into God's world. Death in Scripture has three aspects. Some of you are familiar. If you're not, if you are, it's a reminder. If not, there are three aspects, three ways that God speaks of death in Scripture. There is physical death. That is where there is a separation from the body, from the flesh, from the soul. There is a departure Scripture sometimes speak of it as her spirit left her and those kind of things. There is a lifeless hunk of flesh when that physical death occurs is what Christ himself experienced. You remember it says that at the end of his atoning work that he gave up his spirit. It was no longer in that body that hung on the cross and that was put in the grave by Joseph of Arimathea and so forth. It's physical death. That is a result. One of 
The great observations of the early chapters of Genesis is to note that in chapter 5, you have this reoccurring phrase that we're going to hear again and again all the way until we get to chapter 21 of Revelation when there is no more death, and he died, 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 and on it goes. So physical death, there is that aspect of the curse of sin. There is spiritual death, referred to in other places, but most commonly... Uh, Turned to is Paul's declaration of that in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and that means there is no life with God. It is the opposite of eternal life. Eternal life is to be awakened to God. It is to share with God a fellowship and a relationship in which his glory is impressed and felt and understood and known on our hearts, where he is trusted and believed and where we can walk in obedience to him as Christ did on earth. He was the very manifestation, John said, of eternal life. It is the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. What was manifest to us? His perfect love and obedience and nearness to the Father. That was the life of God manifest to us in the Son. It is what we are engrafted into. This intimate relationship and knowledge with the Father, that is eternal life. Spiritual death is the opposite of that. It is the contrast to that. There is no love for God. There is no beholding his glory. There is no obedience to his command. It is to live a life under the rule of the flesh, of the sinful inclinations in our heart, of unbelief in our heart and the various ways that it manifests itself. It is to live a life independent of God, autonomously, to live our own way, to go our own way, whether we do that in self-righteousness, in rejection of the gospel, or if we do it in the most extreme degree of licentiousness in all of the manifestations of sin and of the flesh and everything in between. It is spiritual death, is to live outside of truly loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is a third death that is spoken of in Scripture, and that is eternal death. That is eternal death, and we will be faced with that when we get to the end of Revelation. He says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That is hell. That is eternal damnation, is referred to as eternal death. Why? Because as Paul said to the Thessalonians, it is eternally separate from the presence of God. Even the most rank unbeliever has a sense of the mercy of God in their life, even now, outside of the judgment of God. There is still a goodness of God that they have by breathing. It is not the full terrors of hell. But when there is judgment, that is taken away in all of Any sense of the goodness of God is removed and only his displeasure is felt. And that is the second death. And so Christ is sovereign over all of those. He's sovereign over physical death. He is by a sovereign power who gives life to those who are spiritually dead. And he is sovereign over the eternal judgment. That's noted here in the second phrase. He's sovereign over death. He has the keys of death and the keys of Hades. What does he mean by Hades? It's in the Hades is a, is a translation of the Hebrew term in the Old Testament of Sheol. And Sheol was kind of this all-encompassing term in the Old Testament. It was the place of the dead. It was when someone died, they went to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the unliving. And it was referred to as the place where both the righteous and the unrighteous went. There wasn't a great distinction in the Old Testament. Sheol was just a general term that designates the place of the disembodied, disembodied state of the dead. In Genesis 42, 38, just to give you an example of this, Jacob said this, Genesis, don't turn there, Genesis 42, he says this in verse 38, he says, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and sorry, he wasn't saying down to eternal judgment, he was saying you'll bring it down to death, the place of darkness, the place of no longer participating in the life of this world. It's also spoken of as the place of judgment. Speaking of the judgment of Babylon, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. There it is spoken of as the place of the wicked. But during the intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that idea of Sheol came to take on Another characteristic is this place where they were seen there were compartments for the righteous and the unrighteous. But by the time you come into the New Testament, the idea of Sheol in Greek Hades 
is almost entirely negative. It's almost entirely referring to, uh, not solely, but almost in, in almost every instance refers to a place of intermediate torment where the wicked go after death. You see this illustrated in Jesus in the parable of the rich man of Lazarus where he went down to Hades, the rich man did, and he says, here I am in great torment. And in the bosom of Abraham, he heard God say that there is a great chasm between where you are and where Lazarus is, and it's a chasm that cannot be crossed, and in other places as well. There is one exception to this that I would just note as you read your Bible in case you get confused. Peter in Psalm 16 is or quotes Psalm 16 in uh, Acts 2.27, when it says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. To Sheol. And there he uses it merely in that Old Testament sense to the place of death. And that was ultimately a prophecy concerning Christ, meaning that death would not hold him. As a matter of fact, he says it was impossible for death to hold him. But primarily, Hades has the idea of judgment, and that is the idea of here. It is the idea of judgment, the place of judgment. It's pictured as a place for the torment, again, of the unrighteous. Sometimes it's used to speak of that, that sort of evil force that rises up against the purposes of God. And so Christ said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Sometimes it's used in judgment. It will be in Revelation to speak of the judgment that he's bringing upon the earth through the angel, he says in chapter 6, verse 8, somewhat personified here. He says, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades was following him. Death was going to come. Judgment was going to follow. And we already read that in chapter 20 at the end. Death and Hades are pictured as being thrown into the lake of fire. And so why is this important? He's saying Christ is sovereign over this. He has the keys over death. He has the keys over judgment. Again, think of the context. Think of those who are our brethren who are now suffering in the world. Think of those who will suffer in the age, the end of this age. With the rise of the power of evil to imprison, to persecute, to put to death, to separate families... This is a reminder that only Christ truly has that power. The leader of Russia does not have that power, Putin, ultimately. He serves God's purposes in this world, even in his destruction. And we pray that the Christians there recognize that. And any other evil perpetrated against humanity throughout the history of the world, and there are many, the list is unending. It is that Christ stands over it, the Antichrist will be given authority for a period of 42 months to put to death and to kill even God's own people. He's going to tell the church at Smyrna, you're going to be thrown into tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. Why? Because the sovereign one who is sovereign over death, who has the keys of death and Hades, is your Lord who is caring for you. What are some implications for us? And let's consider this now as we come get ready for the Lord's table. One, he means then that in telling us this, that we can serve him in confidence. We can serve him in confidence. He says again to the church at Philadelphia in verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. It's guaranteed those who come to Christ. It means that there is no more fear of death for the unbeliever. An unbeliever who is at least thinking sanely fears death. Hebrews 2 says this. He says that the children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Through the fear of death. But I say that it is a sane response because the other implication is this, is that those who are outside of Christ, there is reason for fear. There is reason for fear. It's a damning message when the church who has the proclamation of the gospel tries to do everything they can to assure people that there isn't a hell. 
and that there is not a judgment and accountability for sin. That might sound gracious and kind and open up conversations, they think, but it is the greatest horror that we could lie to someone that way. And so in his famous sermon, this comes out, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Some of you have read it. For the believer, it's a sermon of great joy and hope because of what we've been rescued from. But listen to just one of the ways that he describes this so effectively, Jonathan Edwards, in the sermon. And for those of you who know, that was the sermon, not the first time he preached it, but it was at that time that he preached this that God instigated and brought about and moved forward what we know as the Great Awakening here in New England. But he says this, and Jonathan Edwards is graphically describing this reality of the sovereignty of God over death and judgment. And, and he's explaining a statement in Deuteronomy 32.5 which says this, their foot shall slip in due time, speaking of the wicked. And just listen, it's somewhat extended, but it, it's up on the uh, screen, I think. It says this, just listen. It also implies that they are also exposed to sudden unexpected destruction, just as he who walks in slippery places is always liable to fall. He cannot foresee from one moment to the next whether he will stand or fall. When he does fall, it is sudden and without warning. Oh, how they are brought to destruction is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. The only reason they have not already fallen is that God's appointed time has not yet come. The text says that when their appointed time does come, their foot shall slip. Then by their own weight, they will be left to fall. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And at the very instant he does, they will fall into destruction. A man standing on the slippery slope at the edge of a pit cannot stand unassisted. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. From these words, I would insist on this. Nothing keeps wicked people out of hell for a single moment except the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, which is not hindered or restrained by anything. It is no security to the wicked for one moment that they are not in apparent danger of dying soon. It is no security for the natural man that he is now healthy or that he does not foresee how he might suddenly be taken by some accident, though his present circumstances pose no visible danger. The long and varied history of humanity disproves the assumption that we are not on the very brink of eternity itself. And that unseen and unexpected ways that people suddenly leave this world are too numerous to imagine. The unconverted walk over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. And there are countless places on that bridge that are too weak to bear their weight. These places go unseen. The arrows of death fly unnoticed at high noon. The sharpest eyes cannot spot them. God has so many unfathomable ways of taking wicked people out of this world and sending them to hell that he does not need miracles or unnatural causes to do so. And he goes on. And so the warning here to say that Christ is sovereign over it is to say that the continuance of a person's life is not due to eating organic food, going to the gym three times a week, avoiding every place of danger, staying at home during COVID for the fear that you might go outside and something might kill you, or whatever, go down the list. It ultimately is not what keeps you alive or what keeps you or brings you down to the place of death. It is merely the sovereign and good pleasure of God. And that is the emphasis here. It is Christ alone who holds the keys of death and Hades. And the righteous and the unrighteous alike will not die one second sooner than it has been determined by God. Neither will they live one second longer than has been granted by the sovereign Lord. That's his point. However, to the unconverted, Edwards goes on to say at the end of his sermon... The hope that lies before all. Speaking of those who are already in hell, he says this. Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God. And have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are in now a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. That's the hope. 
So to believers, so to unbelievers, it is a warning. To believers, it is a comfort. To know that our soul, our lives are never at any moment in danger of being taken any sooner than the Lord has determined after he's finished with us here on this earth. And even greater still, when he does bring that moment to pass, it means this, that for the believer who is in Christ, it is a step an entrance into not fear and darkness, but into the place of God's eternal love, the brightness of his glory, the welcoming of all of the host of heaven into the nearest fellowship and joy and happiness and glory that we cannot even fathom here because our sin is forever removed. It means that we who are guilty but have been cleansed by the blood of the land will stand before the infinitely holy God, blameless with great joy in Christ. And so Paul says, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And that's what we celebrate in the table this morning. Him who has brought us into this intimate fellowship with himself, who has loved us with an eternal love, we who know him, who has granted us to share in his life with the Father, who has forgiven us and released us from our sins by his blood, who has promised us that he is returning and gives us this reminder so we would be of good courage to hold on to him by faith until that day comes. So let me pray and the men will hand out the elements and then we'll remember the Lord and the table. Father, thank you for your word. Teach us by your spirit. For those here who do not know you, who are blind to your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, would you, with the same sovereign power that said, the light shall shine out of darkness, will you shine in their heart the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Christ as Redeemer, as sovereign Lord, as the one who is sovereign mediator, who rules over present and the future, life and death, blessing and judgment. And for us who do know you, have received and tasted of this grace, may we worship you and be committed to you afresh to walk with you by faith. In the name of Christ, I pray, amen.